Hey everybody, got an awesome episode for you today, but first, gonna do a word from our sponsors, as well as give you a little more administrative stuff going on on the back end of hashing it out, and things we're involved in that you can um, you can become a part of. So, first off, I'd like to thank you, thank our sponsors, Avalanche, Avalanche Labs, the highly scalable open source platform for launching decentralized financial applications. Recently raised about $42 million through a public sale, and now gearing up for its next milestone next week, the launch of its mainnet on September 21st. That's right. They're launching their mainnet September 21st. So get prepared. Uh, also, to bootstrap their ecosystem, Avalanche opened up a bunch of new grants for developers who want to build high-performance DeFi, that's decentralized finance, applications and infrastructure. They have open calls for projects like a decentralized exchange, lending dApps, stablecoins, with more in it every week. So they also accept applications for other decentralized projects to join the Avalanche ecosystem. So go build on Avalanche, build without limits, and go learn more at avalabs.org. That's A-V-A-L-A-B-S.org. As for what we're doing at Hashing It Out, um, there's two things I want to talk about. First is uh, Hashing It Out is a part of the Panvala League. If you don't know what Panvala is, look back a few episodes and we did um, an episode with Neuron about what Panvala is, how it works, so on and so forth. Um, it's a really awesome project that we're happy to be a part of. So um, this round, Panvala is donating about, I think, current pan prices, about $170,000 to the Ethereum community. How does it donate those things? Where does it figure out how to donate them? Well, the Panvala League, has Gitcoin grants and hashing it out as part of the Panvala League. So we have a Gitcoin grant that basically is a multi-sig. And if you donate to that Gitcoin grant with PAN, it'll get matched not only by the CLR matching of typical Gitcoin grants, but also additionally by um, the $170,000 that Panvala is giving out. And then we're going to use that money that's raised through that grant with the advice and um, decisions hold from the Ethereum security community to fund security and, and um, infrastructure projects. I We believe that hashing it out that security and infrastructure is a very underfunded but incredibly vitally important part of the ecosystem that needs more funds. So we're going to try and do that. And you can help by donating PAN or whatever to the Gitcoin grant, the Gitcoin grant that's going to be in the uh, description of this episode. So get your PAN, donate it to us. We'll find a good place for it to help help the security and infrastructure of the Ethereum ecosystem. And uh, other big news that I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast yet is hashing it out is leaving the Bitcoin Podcast Network because the Bitcoin Podcast Network is no longer a network. It's just the Bitcoin Podcast. So uh, over the next maybe ten or so episodes, we're going to be um, continuing on this this feed that you're subscribed to now, but. In the process, there's going to be a new feed that's only going to be hashing it out. You'll need to resubscribe to uh, because at the end, you're not going to be able to get it on the feed you're on now, the Bitcoin podcast. So we're going to have their own thing. We're going to do some new branding, um, try and add some more resources and so on and so forth to the show so that um, you can be a little more uh, stable. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. But we're going to have our own feed. Check out, uh, listen up for it. Check the Twitter. See whenever we uh, publish that. But at least you get to just Listen to us and no one else. It's going to be great. Bitcoin podcast is going where I'm still doing that. It's just two different feeds now. And on to the show. Now entering the Bitcoin podcast network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. I'm your host today, Dr. Corey Petty, with John. And today's episode, we're going to talk with... Many Zerali, I think I said that right. I want to say I said that right from Sigma Prime. Um, and the main focus of today's episode is going to be around kind of uh, Ethereum 2.0, how it works, uh, kind of a couple of gotchas uh, 
uh, what to expect uh, as a user, um, and kind of the timeline around there. So start off, John, why don't you say hello real quick? Hello, hello real quick. Hello Let's get hashed. You know. Let's get hashed. And uh, I mean, somebody needs some cheesy tagline for the show. Uh, I'm working on it. I've been thinking about <laughs> new ones. We'll get one. And uh, Maddie, give us an introduction. Um, I don't think you've been on the show before, but we talk quite a bit. So tell us about yourself and SigmaFrog. Sure. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Mehdi. I'm a co-founder and director of Sigma Prime. Um, we are an information security consultancy, mostly based out of um, Australia. We've been hiring a bunch of people all over the world lately. Um, we've been around for about four years, uh, providing security assessment services to um, a lot of blockchain projects, working um, almost exclusively lately on um, Ethereum, providing security assessment uh, on smart contracts, on uh, a lot of protocol uh, layer developments. Um, and I guess we are here today to talk about uh, ETH2 because we are also the founders and maintainers of Lighthouse, uh, a Rust implementation of the Ethereum 2.0 specification. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. Uh, real quick, what would you say the, I guess, Tactical advantage or differentiator a lighthouse has over other Ethereum 2 uh, implementations? Um, that's a good question. Question that we get quite often. We, uh, because of, I guess, the DNA of the company, uh, we're an information security consultancy. We take security very seriously. We'd like to think that uh, we've incorporated security into our development lifecycle very early on. So um, we'd like to think that. Our clients is probably one of the, hopefully, one of the safest, most secure clients out there. Um, it's written in Rust, and Rust is particularly fast. So the focus has also been on uh, performance, speed, and as I mentioned, security. Um, so that's probably what differentiates us from um, the rest of the other teams. Cool. I want to give you a moment to, to pitch and chill out, Sigma Prime in the process, and tell people why it's like Lighthouse is good, in y'all's opinion. Uh, yeah, so like I guess the, the approach here is to kind of break down the concept of Ethereum 2 and what's going on and what users can expect. So uh, I'm not exactly sure how I want to do this. The, the conversation is going to naturally evolve, I think. But like if you had to give the highest of high over like level overviews of the transition from F1 to F2, what would you say? Hmm. Okay, let's have a crack at this. Um, so F1 is the proof of work chain that we all love and use. Um, and as you all probably know, the uh, plan was always to transition to a proof of stake consensus mechanism. So namely um, Casper FFG. Um, so the research team has been working on this. The Ethereum Foundation research team has been working on this for the past four, five, perhaps six years. And the implementers have been um, developing the, um, the specification, turning it into actual usable software uh, for the past two, two and a half years. Um, the main difference, as uh, mentioned, is the consensus mechanism. So moving away from proof of work, which is you know, a, quite a wasteful way of coming to consensus, if you ask me. Uh, I know this can be quite polarizing in our community, but this is basically how Paul, my co-founder, got started um, on, on Lighthouse. Um, I think Ethereum currently uses as much electricity as Costa Rica, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and we think at Sigma Prime that there's you know, much better ways of coming to consensus um, and Casper FFG is one of them. So super excited about the environmental impact of the transition from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, and uh, this transition will happen gradually. Um, we'll be shipping ETH2 in various phases. So phase zero is the first phase that will be introduced hopefully in a few weeks time, a couple of months, the latest, certainly this year, that's what we're aiming for. Um, and this introduces the consensus change, right? This introduces the proof of stake consensus mechanism, Casper FFG, and we essentially call this chain the beacon chain. And you can see it as this orchestrator um, that gives sort of the pulse of the network to validators 
giving them tasks, rewarding them when they do their job correctly, penalizing them when they don't, etc., etc. Um, so that's phase zero. That's what I guess all client teams are working on at the moment. And um, phase one will hopefully come shortly after. And phase one introduces um, shards, the concept of shards. So Ethereum 2.0 will be a sharded blockchain, meaning that we'll have 64 sub blockchains. You can see them as you know, sort of independent blockchains that are all linked and tied um, with each other through via that consensus mechanism uh, in the beacon chain. Um, so once we have that, um, we'll be effectively using um, those shards just as data availability layers. So we won't effectively have um, state transitions or user sort of smart contracts or transactions as, as we are all familiar with in ETH1. That will come in later. So there's talks about a phase 1.5, which hopefully will um, get ETH1 into ETH2 and have that as a separate dedicated shard. And then phase two uh, will introduce, um, I guess, proper state execution and smart contracts. And this is when we'll actually have a blockchain, a usable blockchain for developers as uh, we all, uh, we're all familiar with, with, um, with Ethereum 1. Hope that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we're done here then. <laughs> Let's wrap up. <laughs> okay, guys. Um, maybe can you uh, can you tell us a bit more about about phase zero? Like, what what do you mean when you say beacon chain? What does it do? What's like the base functionality that we get? Yeah, then? cool. Uh, something I forgot to mention um, is that to transition from um, ETH. Ethereum 1 to Ethereum 2, we're going to have a deposit contract on Ethereum 1. I think that's quite important to uh, uh, mention for our listeners. Um, the way you're going to become a validator is by depositing 32 Ether into the deposit contract on the Ethereum 1 proof of work chain. Um, as a result, you will become a validator on the beacon chain. And the beacon chain is effectively a set of, um, you know, comprised of a set of validators that are there to propose blocks and vote on what the canonical um, sort of chain would be. Um, the way it works is by leveraging um, Casper FFG, which is the consensus mechanism that we use on ETH2 um, and uh, allowing us to, uh, yeah, just, sorry, <laughs> allowing us to essentially coordinate the work of, of these validators. So um, validators are incentivized to be online to perform their duties. So there's effectively two types of duties, perhaps three, but let's just talk about these two. Proposing blocks. So the beacon chain has a schedule that we call slots. So a slot is happens every 12 seconds. It's just a, a time window, right? And within that time window, you have a validator that is expected to propose a block. As you can imagine, if that validator is offline, well, that slot won't have a block. So I think it's quite important to try to distinguish and understand the difference between slots and blocks. Slots are just a time window. Blocks fit in one slot, potentially, if the proposer is doing their job correctly. Um, so that's one of the duties. What's in a block in, in these a whole, in phase one, phase zero? Great, great question. There's a whole heap of stuff uh, in a block. So we don't have transactions per se, as mentioned, but we do have information that's available from the Ethereum one chain. Remember how I mentioned there's that deposit contract. Um, we need a way to effectively translate some of that information from F1 to F2. And there is an F1 data field in each block. And validators are responsible for effectively processing deposit logs from the F1 chain and translating that information into the beacon chain. And that happens using that particular field. Another interesting, um, I guess, message or field that's um, in a beacon block 
is uh, what we call attestations. Attestations, you can basically see them as uh, votes. So remember how I mentioned the first type of duties, the uh, production or proposal of blocks. There's another type of duties, which is the attestations and having validators attest to what their, their view of the chain is. And those votes or attestations are effectively um, aggregated and put in beacon blocks, if that makes sense. Uh, what else is in there? Um, we have the Randau. So a great way, so one usual sort of question is, well, how do I know which block am I supposed to vote for or which um, slot am I supposed to propose on? And this comes with, the sh this is usually um, explained by referring to the shuffling algorithm. So mm -hmm. the shuffling is effectively, you take a set of validators you shuffle them, and that gives you the roles and responsibilities for each one of them per slot. So in order for us to do so, we need some sort of entropy, right? And the entropy is um, basically um, a Randau type of um, entropy mechanism. So Randau is whereby is where you have a group, a selected group of uh, participants that each uh, propose, that each give, um, you know, come up with a random number and then the actual random number used by the system is a result of you know sometimes just a, a XOR an exclusive OR of all the inputs from each one of the participants and that's how we get our randomness and we then use that randomness to uh, essentially yeah assign validators to uh, various duties, including block proposition and um, attestation. Do, yeah, but what if I, assignment oh. of what shards a particular validator will be validating mm -hmm. also get assigned at that point? Yeah, so that's coming into play a bit later, as mentioned, that's, that's phase one, phase 1.5, phase two. But yes, the idea is to use that um, entropy, that source of entropy to assign people to what we call committees. And committees are responsible for validating um, transactions happening on specific shards. You're absolutely can, correct. Uh, can any, any one validator be assigned to multiple, like multiple slots or shards at the same time? Uh, so each validator is guaranteed to attest at least once, or I think exactly once, per epoch. Right, so an epoch is 32 slots, one slot is 12 seconds, so an epoch is roughly 6.3, 6.4 minutes, and within that time frame, you are guaranteed to uh, attest to what you see is the canonical chain at a certain slot. Um, so, and in terms of block uh, proposals, there can only be one block proposal per slot. And this, this probably, um, you know, might start talking about slashings and how we uh, police the network and make sure that the validators are doing their job correctly. If you see someone proposing uh, sort of twice, right? If I'm the block proposer on that particular slot and I'm caught proposing two separate blocks on that same slot, that is a slashable offense, right? We can't have that. We can't have people proposing blocks uh, right, left, and center. So if someone catches you doing this, they can simply submit a proof of you doing so, which is kind of trivial, right? You've been signing two conflicting messages at the same slot. You don't deserve to be part of this anymore. We will slash you and kick you out of this great network. Um, so we can perhaps talk about slashings a bit, uh, a bit later. But um, yeah, so we can't have two separate, two different validators on the same slot but we do have multiple validators um, net, sort of uh, securing and validating transactions on each shard. Okay, good to know. I was kind of curious about that in terms of the uh, kind of the committee selection around the different tasks at hand. Um, so and... this will be hardened with um, what we call VDFs. Um, oh dear. VDF stand for <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Oh my God, I'm sorry. Uh, verifiable delay <laughs> Thank you, verifiable delay function. So because the Randau um, sort of entropy mechanism is kind of gameable, right? Like if you're the last person, you can essentially say, well, because I'm the last person, I can see what everyone else produced and then decide to reveal my vote according to my own interest, right? And we can't have that. Um, well, it's obviously extremely difficult to actually pull out. Like this attack is not sort of trivial, but... Is that um, a splashable offense to, to not reveal? Uh, not really. It, oh, okay. Yeah. But, well, it's, it's just like it will, it will kind of come into um, a, an offline sort of penalty. So, oh. yeah, because like, by the way, you're like, oh, no, I'm not interested in pr producing this particular block and revealing my Rendau. Uh, if I'm the block proposer, we can't really tell whether that was that was done maliciously or if you were just offline. Um, so, but isn't isn't that like I, I thought that's part of the job of validating is being offline, right? Is being online, right? Is, is so, being online, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. So you want in, you you incentivize people uh, for being online and you penalize them for being offline. And the penalties of being offline are basically um, kind of the same as the reward of doing your job correctly. So you, you obviously lose the, you know, there's the opportunity cost, the, 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 the winnings that you don't make, plus an actual penalty, if that makes sense. So I think we should at some point try to clarify um, slashings versus penalties for being offline. A slashable offense is essentially triggered when you can prove that there has been equivocation. Right, there has been malicious activity. Well, to be to be perfectly fair, it does not have to be malicious. It can result in a software bug, right? If you're running some software that's you know having difficulties keeping track of the head of the chain and has been sort of testing, um, letting you attest to you know separate sort of chains at the same time. This and you you're not even knowing. Um, that's not really malicious, is it? That's probably just you know result of the software bug. Um, but this is um, provably um, an equivocable sort of message as per the Casper FFG slashing conditions. Whereas if you're offline, well, you're offline. <laughs> you're not, you know, it's not a software bug. You're not being malicious. It's just kind of tough luck. I don't know, your internet connection went down or you ran out of disk space or for some reason you're I don't know, electricity in your house went down. So uh, we need a way to incentivize people to keep their nodes online. But at the same time, we don't want to penalize them too much if they're missing attestations or missing uh, blocks, proposing uh, blocks for various reasons. Um, so that's kind of the trade-off. And this is where I think we should uh, be careful when we communicate with the broader community uh, around uh, penalties in the E2 space. There's two types of penalties, I'd say. Slashing, slashable offenses, and then the offline penalties. The provable cheating and like unprovable non-participation. Kind of. That's right. That's right. Yep. Uh, and then you also have you have, you have carrots too. It's not just all sticks. So like, yeah. What do you what do you get on the beacon chain in terms of carrots? Like, why would why would someone be incentivized to do this? And that will that's going to springboard me into a conversation later that. Um, I would like to talk about around kind of user expectations, but uh, like, what are the carrots? Why do why would why would anybody want to do this? Because you would get some sweet sweet rewards. Um, so to bootstrap the beacon chain, we need some ether, right, to be locked in this deposit contract and sort of turned into ether into the beacon chain. And the way we incentivize people to do so is by giving them um, rewards. And those rewards are effectively, if I recall correctly, I haven't seen the calculations in a long time, but uh, with the threshold, the very minimum that we require to bootstrap the beacon chain, I think we're looking at about 20 to 22% return in yield per year, uh, which is pretty decent. Obviously, there's a lot of, uh, sort of risk associated to uh, with this, and we can we can talk about it. But this is how this is the carrot that you're referring to, Corey. The um, quite juicy returns for early adopters, early participants that are willing to sort of risk or commit to securing the beacon chain. What is that a function of? What is that return percentage a function of? It's a function of the total number of validators, um, AKA the total number of ether uh, locked into this new system. So the more ether we have, 
the less yield we'll get, if that makes sense. So you really want to incentivize people to do so, to, to actually lock in their ETH. So the very first um, people to, 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 to have done that will effectively uh, get a very, very high yield. But that yield will you know, slowly uh, decrease as we get more and more uh, validators onto the Beacon channel. So there's a, there's a fixed budget, like say like block reward, um, Maybe not fixed, but like it, it doesn't go up if there's more validators, right? So in, in the first week, the plan is to issue some amount of ETH2 and reward the validators. And so the more validators there are, the, the less yield. The less, there. exactly, exactly. And we can't really predict how many validators we'll get, right? right? Um, we, can only, we can only be sure that we'll only bootstrap and kick off the beacon chain if we have more than a certain number. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it is uh, obviously public information. Um, and it's on the uh, E2 specs repo. I might, um, we'll, we'll definitely put the specs repo on the description cool. of the, uh, the show. Uh, where does that ETH come from? That's brand new ETH. And if so, what does that mean about issuance on the main chain? Interesting question. Uh, that is brand new ETH. Um, and that would, I believe, be part of the total inflation. Um, of the Ethereum currency or cryptocurrency or whatever you want to call it these days. Uh, so for a while, we'll be running two parallel chains, right? We'll be running Ethereum 1.0, the proof of work chain that we all know and love and use today, and Ethereum 2.0. Ethereum 1.0 has um, a block reward, right? This is how we incentivize miners to do their job, spend a lot of electricity uh, validating transactions. On top of obviously transaction fees, which I think these days account for the vast majority yeah. of the actual. Uh, a, I think it's the, the first reward. time we've actually had a blockchain that has equivalent transaction fees to to, to, to issuance. Wow! On, on a public network, that's that's hectic. Which, is, I was, which uh, sucks for users that aren't doing DeFi stuff, but yeah, uh, it's pretty neat, I guess. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. I guess it's kind of working <laughs> as intended. Um, but yeah, so that, there's the inflation um, of the proof of work chain, which is, I believe, two Ether per block, if I'm not mistaken. Keeps changing every now and then, but um, should be two Ether per block, if I recall correctly. Um, and uh, on top of that, we'll be adding the inflation of the beacon chain. So that issuance that we were referring to will effectively come out of the inflation or the issuance, the total overall issuance budget of Ethereum. Maybe when the next phase happens, we'll do this again to talk about how transaction fees and cross shard transactions play into um, uh, rewards uh, because that's totally. certainly going to be something, but uh, maybe not all the details are hammered down yet. So I agree. It's probably for another conversation. All right, cool. Uh, let's see. Where do we want to go from here? Um, I, I can change the subject entirely unless John, you have uh, something you'd like to continue here. Um, I don't have anything on the tip of my tongue. Okay. Uh, I kind of want to transition in. Like now that we have, I think that's a, well, I don't know, maybe the best ver verbal overview of kind of what you can expect, the, how the beacon chain to work and what its functions are in terms of phase zero and within the context of all the, lar the larger phases. Uh, what I don't think is very good public knowledge is expectations from a user standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the process of me getting a validator, uh, submitting my money into the uh, F1 deposit contract, and then being prepared correctly for when the testnets start or for when the main chain starts? What we've seen from previous testnets is that people love locking up testnet ether and having validators, but they hate having nodes that are ready when the, when the, when the testnet goes live. Totally. How do we? How do we? How can we get users to understand what they need to be doing and the associated resources that are required from them? And like, kind yeah. of what are they optimizing for in order mm. to do that? There's a few things here, I think, in your question, Corey. Um, the first one is probably the challenge of running unincentivized test nets. <laughs> so yeah. people are super keen to help and, you know, they're, they've got girly et and they're keen to lock in their girly et into the deposit contract. But when it comes to actually running their nodes, well, you know, someone else is going to do that. 
it's okay. I don't really need to because there's if I end up losing my girly at well, it's not worth anything. So doesn't we, we don't really care. Uh, so I think that's what we've been um, facing, as in we the to development community um, is that problem of like incentivizing people to actually you know help and run their nodes when uh, when we uh, launch these test nets. One of the one of the great I guess incentive mechanisms that are out there is the Popes, pull-ups, I, I, I never know how to pronounce that, but it's great. It's the proof of attendance protocol. So if you do your job correctly on a testnet, you get a nice NFT, which is a sort of a, of a badge uh, that shows that, hey, I was one of the people that sort of helped bootstrap the um, ETH2 network by testing, by running validators on certain testnets. Um, this is you know, not necessarily enough as we've seen with Medaya, Dasha, and Spadina. So Spadina is the latest, was the latest testnet um, called or um, described as a dress rehearsal for validators to, you know, essentially play with the deposit contract and generate their keys and run their clients accordingly. We know a bunch of people that took this very seriously. A lot of people that are planning on running a bunch of validators were super keen on trying these things out. But for the chain to come to finality, and that's a concept that we haven't actually uh, spoken about yet, but we need uh, at least two thirds of the network to be doing their job correctly. And if you have you know, more than one third of the network not doing their job correctly or being offline, then you're, you have this um, chain that's sort of lingering and not finalizing. And finality is this beautiful concept that we have in ETH2 that allows us, that, that that is responsible for so many optimizations in ETH2 clients. So if you have to keep track of all the potential forks and reorgs and heads and of, of the multiple chains that are out there, uh, it's a heavy load on ETH2 clients on the actual blockchain nodes. But when we finalize a, an epoch or a slot, we basically come to the conclusion where we say, hey, network, everyone here agrees that up to this particular slot number, um, those transactions cannot be reverted. This is now the canonical uh, chain and will or forever will be. So then clients can go like, okay, sweet. We, we, once we all agree to this, I don't need to keep track of all this information that's you know um, exhausting my resources. Uh, I can then use, or at least Lighthouse uses two types of databases, a hot database and a cold database. The hot database is where we put all the non-finalized type stuff. And once we hit finality, we can be like, okay, sweet. I'm gonna transfer, I'm gonna move a bunch of that information to the cold database. Um, so I think um, what we've seen on those test nets is long periods without finality because we don't have a way to incentivize people to actually you know, do their jobs correctly on these mock networks. Um, there's been chats about having incentivized test nets uh, and whatnot. I think Afri even said that, well, phase zero is the incentivized test net for E2. Uh, yeah, it know, is. It's, it's <laughs> an interesting way to look at it. Um, but to, sorry, to go back, I've been derailing a bit, but I thought it was quite important to, to mention. Yeah, this I think I'm glad you did that. That's a very important aspect that I think people need to understand is that if you don't have the right amount of participation across all the validators that are registered, then the chain doesn't come to finality. And that's right. It, it causes a tremendous amount of havoc. This was probably the best thing that could have happened to those test nets, to Vitasha, because as a result, every single client team has been pushing hard to optimize their software to handle this particular case. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, that by having that very low participation level um, causing havoc on the test net, uh, client teams have been working really, really hard to make sure that if this ever happens on mainnet, which is, if you ask me, quite unlikely, going back to the carrots, people like carrots, people like working towards rewards, and people will most likely keep their validators online. But if for some reason this happens on mainnet, we now have a set of pretty hardened clients to face this um, situation. So, so, yeah, sorry, you go, John. I, I want to I just like, I, I didn't want to be sure I, this is clear. Like people are, so people are signing up, they're depositing their ETH, so they are registered as validators, but then they're just like, they're turning off their laptops and walking away. Like that's basically what's going on. 
and they're getting slashed and they just don't care. So would, would it would it even would, would it be better if there were fewer people signing up or like registering validators and that's and, the but they question. were but they were that's more dedicated totally 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 that's a great question. So to to do that, we've been running private sort of test nets just amongst oh, yeah. ourselves. Like the, each team would have a bunch of private networks, or we spin up like. 1,000, 10,000 validators just to see how, um, just to basically test some optimizations and uh, new features and whatnot. When having a large number of validators is very interesting and important to test is uh, basically to try to replicate the actual load that those clients will be facing in mainnet. Um, you know, chances are this will be quite a popular new network a lot of people will be willing to actually lock their, their ETH. And what happens is the more, so the actual resource consumptions uh, of, for each client um, is effectively scales linearly with the amount of validators. So the more validators you have on the network, the more cryptographic operations you have to perform to validate attestations, um, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, essentially BLS signature verification um, that number of operation will, you know, go, um, will follow linearly the number of um, nodes or sorry, validators on the network. So it is, it is quite important for us to have a trial run with a very large number of validators so we can effectively see whether we can handle uh, that load. Um, what we've been doing, as I mentioned, is, you know, run a few nodes with a bunch of validators on top of them. Uh, it's also great to have a greater distribution whereby we only have perhaps, you know, a couple of validators for each node um, on average, if that makes sense. Okay. Then continuing on to uh, the resources that a user can expect to have, what's the thing that, first, like what are the minimum requirements that someone should have for running a validator? At least for phase zero. I mean, for one thing, like, we'll, we'll talk about this first. What are the requirements yeah. that someone should, like a reasonable requirement someone should have when trying to run a validator for phase zero? That's a great question, and it's a tricky question as well. Um, I don't want people to think that the requirements for phase zero will be the requirements onwards. Oh, I, I, that was, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, there's <it's, laughs> probably this misconception that, oh, I'm just going to buy a Raspberry Pi, an old Raspberry Pi with, you know, two or four gigs of RAM, and that'll be it. <laughs> I'm just going to run my validator. It's going to, you know, do its job on the, the, the beacon chain and also, you know, validate chart transactions, et cetera, et cetera. Please don't. <laughs> if you do end up uh, running your validators on a Raspberry Pi, it is certainly doable. Right, we've been running Lighthouse on Raspberry Pis. It's been running smoothly for, and a bunch of people have been doing so, including Paul, my co-founder. Um, but do expect to have to upgrade your hardware at some stage. So, back to your question, Corey. I can only talk about Lighthouse. I'm not entirely sure about the other clients. Perhaps you could chime in with uh, Status. I know Status Nimbus uh, is working hard for making um, a light or not a light client, but a client that can operate under um, sort of tight conditions in terms of- Yeah, we're um, definitely more focused on resource constricted devices. That's right. So in our case, um, you know, a standard, as I said, a Raspberry Pi, eight gigs of RAM is kind of enough. Um, your storage is quite important as well. Like your disk storage, I mentioned the cold and hot databases. So having, you know, an SSD that's connected to it, that's, you know, up to a hundred gigs of, of, of storage is, is plenty. Um, and I think as a general rule of thumb, any recent hardware will be will be more than enough for phase zero, at least for Lighthouse. Uh, the memory footprint of Lighthouse is very low, at least compared to um, a lot of other clients. We, we really try to make it um, optimize the memory footprint and the CPU consumption as much as possible, because at the end of the day, that's like, say you're running your validators on a cloud infrastructure, if you can halve your resource consumption in terms of RAM and CPU usage, 
well, you're kind of almost doubling your ROI, right? That means that you don't need a such a large instance on say AWS or GCP or Azure, whatever cloud platform you use these days. Um, and it's obviously very appealing for people to not spend as much on their validator setup. So it's been a focus of ours since day one, really trying to minimize that footprint. Um, and as a result, yeah, we can run comfortably on um, a T2 instance on AWS, T2 medium instance on AWS. What about uh, bandwidth and power? Like uptime is incredibly important here. Um, mm -hmm. And so is consistent internet connection. What type of bandwidth consumption do we have? And what are the, like, what are the, what's the uptime expectation of this, of this device? You can't, you're not running it on your laptop. You're using it for work. I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't recommend that because if you end up, I don't know, if you end up switching off your laptop or restarting because you need a, a, to apply a security patch or, um, or whatever, you, uh, you're basically going to be offline for a bit and probably be, you know, penalized for a bit or at least losing the opportunity of making um, Ether during that time. So I would personally not recommend using the same hardware as you use for your day-to-day -day lives. I would uh, certainly try to use a dedicated piece of hardware. Um, obviously, we kind of want people not to use cloud services as much. The whole purpose of this thing is to be very decentralized. So if we all end up running nodes on, AW, on AWS, sorry, um, well, yeah, <laughs> it'll be a bit sad. So um, certainly uptime is uh, quite important, but gotta be, we got to be careful there. A lot of people have been thinking about backup plans and redundancies and having, you know, some sort of two, let's say two or three nodes uh, getting fired up in case the primary node is offline. Keep in mind that if you're offline, you're not actually slashed, right? Back to that um, explanation that we gave earlier, there's two types of penalties, slashings and offline penalties. So if you're offline, it's actually not that bad, right? Like if, you, if you're offline for a whole year, I think Paul did the math last time, and it, like, it, I think you're losing like 10% of, of your stake. That's if you're offline the whole year. <laughs> so it, it's, it's really not that bad. But as a result, if you start having all these complex backup plans and redundancy setups, what can happen and what actually happened on, I believe, Cosmos was that you have this uh, complex set of redundancy uh, setup whereby the two nodes actually went online at the same time and started producing the same message and started producing the same blocks. Remember the uh, proposer slashing that I was explaining earlier? Well, we can't have someone, the same validator, submit two different blocks at the same slot. Chances are, if you use a redundancy setup that you know is, is not perfectly finely tuned, well, you will end up at some point either testing wrongly or submitting blocks wrongly. Um, so really, I, I think we should really be careful here um, about, about those trade-offs. Obviously, uptime is critical, but what's, I think, even more important is not producing slashable messages. Because if you get slashed, not only you lose Ether, but you also have now this, what the remaining of your balance that's stuck in a state that you can't actually sort of withdraw or get access to. That's now stuck until we until everyone in this new chain has access to their ETH, which should happen in phase one or phase 1.5. So again, be careful out there. I understand that people want to maximize their profits. I understand that people really want to be um, online as much as possible. This is great. But when it comes to actually having redundancy plans, think about it twice. What if... Uh... What if I screw up on accident? Something happens. I have a bug in my software, and it submits the wrong attestation uh, or something. It, two questions here: Can I migrate? Is it easy to migrate to a different client if I don't like the one that I'm using? And uh, can I top up my my ETH account so that I can get back to the right threshold so I can continue participating like a good validator? First question, uh, we have been working, Michael from our team actually has been uh, putting together an interoperable 
format for slashing database protection. So that if you move, say, from Nimbus to Lighthouse or from Lighthouse to Prism, then we are all using the same database schema and we can import our slashing protection database. So pretty much every client nowadays has a slashing protection database, uh, which is effectively checked before your validator is allowed to sign messages. So each time there's a message to be signed, the process goes, okay, I'm gonna check in this database whether this message is gonna be uh, an, uh, a slashable offense based on what I've submitted previously. So the problem here is that if you start changing clients, then you potentially lose that information, right? Um, and if we start running, as I said, uh, a validator on Lighthouse that used to be on Nimbus, uh, well, we can't, we now don't have access to that information anymore, so we can't protect our users against it. Um, so now, thanks to that uh, EIP, I think it's an EIP now, that Michael put together, every single client team is now building the same slashing protection database schema so that we can easily import them and export them. So yes, we will be able to migrate from a client to another uh, in a relatively safe way. So if, if you do your job correctly, if the slashing database uh, protection is, is up and running correctly, you shouldn't be producing any slashable offenses. This is something that we should be perhaps broadcasting a bit more. You know, slashing is quite scary, but if you do, um, if you follow the recommendations from the various client teams, if you do run the software uh, that client teams provide with the slashing protection, then you should be fine. We will check those messages for you before submitting them and broadcasting them on the network and effectively before even signing them in the first place. Uh, so that's the first question. And I think what's left for the community to do, as you know, there's a lot of work going on. So, but this, this should, in my opinion, kind of be a, a priority over the next few weeks, uh, is write easy to follow guides to migrate from a client to another. Um, I think there's a couple of resources out there. People have been asking us questions on Discord, but we haven't um, sort of put together a comprehensive guide on how to import and export your, um, your, your validators, if that makes sense. Can you remind me where your second question was? Can I top up my ETH account? Uh, why would you need to do so? Uh, if what if I got slashed? Oh, I if you get, get slashed, my friend, it's kind of game over. Okay, so like if I get slashed, that money's gone. I can't top up my ETH account and continue to participate Not, back in the network. That's it. Thanks for playing. How much? How much is the slash slashing penalty? Is it thirty two ETH? No, 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 no. Thank God. Uh, Can I no, start it, with more than thirty two ETH, or is it like no. one validator thirty? That's right. One validator thirty two ETH. That is all. If yeah. you want to stake a lot more than that, say you want to stake 300, 320 ETH make things simple, then you have to run 10 validators. Okay. And back to your uh, question, Corey, if you get slashed, then you enter, you're into this state, this lingering state where your ether is locked in the beacon chain and not accessible until again, phase one, phase 1.5, and you're, you can't participate in the consensus anymore. You just have to make a new validator completely. Thanks for playing. Yes. And right. like deposit it again, deposit your 32 yeah. ETH again on the, on the S1 chain. And so like, right. I was under the assumption that there's like a like small slashes so that once you hit yeah. under the threshold of 32, you can no longer participate and you can then top it up. Yeah. So that's not, that's not the case. That is not the case. Okay. Good to know. There's only, there's only, there's, there's multiple types of, of slashings, right? But there's only one slashed state, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, so, okay. So it's a flag. It's not yes. how much money yeah. you have or how much no. you have. It's exactly. It's a flag. Splash. This guy's been slashed. Sorry, can't have you around anymore doing uh, doing stuff. But even even if the penalty, even if what we actually slashed, um, what the protocol took away from you is minor. Um, so it depends on the offense. To back to your question, uh, some would be like a third of your uh, balance, and some would be much smaller than that. So, is, so if I, if I, if I um, say I start with thirty-two e, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm I'm on like I'm I'm around like if I just if I start with thirty-two e, turn off my computer, I'm gonna start losing money right away, and I'm done. 
but I or I no. can I can validate no. for a week. I have some no. positive balance. Yeah, and then I can go off, and then I've earned some vacation time, and I can turn off my node. Yeah, remember difference uh. between slashable offenses yeah. and offline penalties. If you're offline, you're not slashed. What you said, yeah. that flag, right? If I've been offline for a bit, if let's say I've missed for some reason, I was too busy drinking beers with my friends. I was too, I, I, I missed the actual Genesis time, right? Forgot to turn on my computer. Uh, well, you're not slashed. It's fine. You can- So my balance keep... can go below 32 yes. as long as if... I don't have the slash. Exactly. And okay. actually it went below 32 for pretty much everyone on Medasha. Mm. because we couldn't reach finality. And what happens when we can't reach finality is that everyone, everyone, including people that actually are doing their job correctly, have their balances decreased. This is to basically uh, force people to come to come online. And also there's this concept of the inactivity leak that kind of forces people that are offline. They, it's kicking them out of the actual um, validator set or the active validator set, if that makes sense. Good to know. Kind of curious about that. that was, that's a good clarification, I think, for a lot of users. Uh, running low on time, so I don't want to dive too far into this. This is something that I've been relatively nitpicky about over the past couple of weeks. Uh, key management. What can users expect about um, the safety of their keys and what keys they have and uh, where they're keeping them? Mm. Interesting, interesting question. Um, perhaps worth mentioning that there are two types of keys in ETH2. Your hot keys, your signing keys, that's the keys that are you know, effectively used by um, your validators to sign consensus messages, blocks, attestations, etc. And your withdrawal keys, which are the keys that you will send your Ether to once you exit the beacon chain, or once you exit the validator set. So the first one, the hot signing keys, um, they're hot keys, right? Like you need your computer, your validator to actually effectively access them every, at least every um, six minutes to attest. So we can't have these, or I wouldn't recommend thinking of having them in a cold wallet, right? Like these are hot for a reason. You really need to access them quickly and frequently whereas the withdrawal keys on the other hand can be seen as this cold wallet right that you will effectively never touch if as long as you're participating and validating uh on the beacon chain you will never need them right these are this is where the ether that you're using will be sent to when you exit the um i guess the consensus uh or the work that you're doing on the consensus mechanism side um, so I'm very excited about Ledger's upcoming support for BLS. You might have uh, heard about this there. Um, hopefully I'm not leaking any sensitive information here. I don't think I am, but they're, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're working hard and, and, and they, they have their, like, it, it is now working and it's in the final sort of stage of testing. So that means that we will be able to use hardware wallets for those withdrawal keys, which is quite exciting. It's not completely fully integrated onto the clients yet, but that's certainly something that we'll be looking at doing before mainnet. Um, otherwise, the way it's currently working for everyone, you've probably seen the Launchpad, uh, which is a website put together by the Ethereum Foundation that allows you to generate keys um, and it's, it's a very simple, user-friendly uh, website that sort of um, hooks into a uh, Python software um, and the, the, the steps to follow are very, very simple. And you basically use that um, software to generate your keys and then you use the website to submit the uh, keys or sorry, you submit the deposit data onto the ETH1 smart contract. And the launchpad facilitates all that, if that makes sense. So that's what users have been uh, playing with uh, over the last few weeks, months, with both Medaya, Medasha, and um, Spadina. And it's also expected uh, for them to, to use that uh, once we hit mainnet. But 
hardware wallet support is coming. Awesome. Um, I'm pretty happy with that in terms of a overview and expectations of um, the upcoming launch of the Beacon Chain mainnet. Is there something that you think I should have asked you that you would you would have liked to have put out there that I didn't? Hmm. We did cover a lot. Um, there's obviously a lot more that we can talk about. Um, so, what are you I worried think, about? What am I worried about? It's <laughs> a good. It's uh, a good one. Um, so we, we're security experts at Sigma Prime. So I think one of the things that we're extremely worried about is security incidents and obviously, you know, vulnerabilities affecting clients and people. Um, I think one of the worst things that could probably happen is a is a fork, like clients not agreeing on the canonical head and perhaps having a discrepancy in their state transitions. That's pretty bad because resolving this um, would most likely require a fork. And, you know, how we know we all know the appetite of our community for forks. So if we can avoid <laughs> that, that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> so we, 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 we are taking steps to making sure that this doesn't happen or at least reducing the likelihood of, 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 of this happening. Um, one of them is perhaps something we should mention is that we're, we're running um, this project called Beacon Fuzz that allows us to or try to find bugs in client implementations before we hit mainnet. And Beacon Fuzz is a set of fuzzers, um, perhaps worth, I'm not sure how much time we have. Yeah, running out of time, but fuzzing is simply a, a, a software testing technique that allows you to uncover security bugs, or not only security bugs, but bugs in general in software. And the idea is to flood certain functions in your software with a lot of different types of inputs and monitor them for crashes, right? And if it crashes, well, you probably wanna inspect that particular input carefully and make sure that your software is patched accordingly. What we're doing with Beacon Fuzz, we're taking this one step further by having what we call differential fuzzing. So we feed that those inputs you can think of them as like gazillions uh, inputs per uh, per hour. And we feed them into uh, all the different client implementations and we compare the output. And we want to make sure that the output is effectively the same across all the client implementations um, so that we can't actually trigger discrepancies and forks consensus splits on the beacon chain. Hopefully that makes sense. We're probably getting a bit too technical here. Not in this audience. I think you're fine. Cool. Uh, at least that, that's what we strive. We strive for an audience that understands what you just said. Uh, this episode may be broadcast a little bit more based on its more high-level overview of concepts. We tend to go very technical, but I wanted something that was uh, just gave a complete package of what people can expect and how things work. Um, about and, and then from here, I think anyone who has questions is able to dive down in the appropriate place for more details. Uh, John, do you have any more? Do you have any more questions? We can wrap it up. Maybe I'll yeah, just toss it to the wrap up. Like, where can people go if they want to learn more? Where can they follow you, etc.? Yeah. Um, so I'm ethz on Twitter. People are welcome to ask me questions there. I'm happy to answer them. We have a Discord channel that's super uh, busy these days. A lot of people are trying a lighthouse and asking questions. So please join uh, our Discord channel if you have any questions. Um, we are sigp slash lighthouse on GitHub and you will have a link to our Discord. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of reading material out there. If you're curious about the specification, the, the ETH2 spec repo that I believe Corey will be linking as part of this episode is a great resource. Uh, it's optimized for readability. So it's it's in, written in sort of Python pseudocode and it's it's fairly easy to follow. Um, there's a bunch of other resources on that repository that will uh, help you understand better perhaps the rationale of some design choices that were made for the beacon chain. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Betty. I appreciate that. And uh Let's cross our fingers and hope for a, a successful launch. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, and yeah, fingers crossed.